Well, um, I don't know about you, but I haven't been using cash that much lately. And recently, I got a $50 bill, and I was super excited to use it and went into the store and got up to the cashier, and they looked puzzled. Like, what do we do with this? Uh, where's your Apple Pay? I mean, what are you bringing to us? And then a couple of them got together and started chatting, and the next thing you know, they came over with this interesting marker pen. And I don't know if that's happened to you before, but they marked the bill. And I'm thinking, well, clearly they think I counterfeited this thing. Do I look like a counterfeiter? I mean, really? And so I went home and kind of had my curiosity peak there and just began to look into this whole uh, process of counterfeiting. Uh, I watched a really neat little video from Ted Ed from TED Talks about counterfeiting and those pins and what they do. And apparently those pins contain a solution of potassium iodide and elemental iodine. Okay, well that solution is yellow, but when it combines with starch or cellulose or amulose, it turns uh, brown or black. Uh, you might have done that in your fifth grade science class where you took an iodine solution and put it on a potato and it turned black and you could identify the starch that was there. Well, that's exactly what that pin does because counterfeit money, the paper that it's made on, the paper that we use, no matter what weight or grade the paper is, it's still paper. Uh, it's made from cellulose, it's made from wood, it contains starch. So when they take that little yellow marker and they mark the bill, if brown or black appears, they know that it's not legitimate U.S. currency. Because legitimate U.S. currency is not printed on paper. It's printed on a substance that's made from cotton and linen. Uh, there's only one place in the world that makes this material, and it's the same place that's been making the material since the beginning of the country, the American Revolution. So there's only one place you can get that material, and the counterfeiters don't have access to that. You mark a regular bill, U.S. currency, and uh, it doesn't turn black or brown because there's no starch there. It's cotton and linen. And the whole time you thought that God supernaturally saved your $100 bill when it went through the wash, right? It was just because it's cotton and linen, not paper. So it responds differently. And then uh, beginning in 1996, they added a little one millimeter UV band to bills. Uh, so you can take a UV light and hold it up to the bills, and you can see a tiny strip that lights up fluorescent green or blue or orange or red and shows the denomination of the bill there, and it's kind of fun. I actually went on Amazon and got a uh, counterfeit currency detector pin for $10. Uh, make sure if you get one, get the one with the UV in the cap, a little UV light. Uh, so I was marking my bills, the bills that I had, and they were legitimate, you know, hoping to find one of those uh, counterfeit bills maybe because the video said that one in 10,000 bills is counterfeit. And that doesn't sound like a lot, but it is a lot, and it adds up to millions of dollars, even with the potential to destabilize our economy. 
So, you know, then I took out that little light and was looking at all the strips. And it was, again, super fun just seeing the way that uh, our currency is so protected to keep us from accepting what's false. Because if we accept what's false, there's a problem. If we uh, have counterfeit currency and we know that it's counterfeit and we want to get rid of it, so we pass it on at the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, uh, we can be responsible for that counterfeit money. We can be uh, prosecuted. Uh, and if we have it, we have nowhere to return it and get a refund. If you accept counterfeit money, you lose. And that's why cashiers and waitresses often check the bills. A lot of employers will even say, if you receive counterfeit money, it comes out of your paycheck. You're responsible for it. So it's really a tragedy when people receive counterfeit money. It's a tragedy that it's out there, but the losses of receiving it can be big time. But, you know, if you think about it, the losses of receiving false teaching, false doctrine, counterfeit teaching is far more severe than even that of receiving counterfeit money. Uh, receiving, accepting counterfeit money can impact your wallet, but receiving or accepting counterfeit teaching can impact your eternity. And that's exactly what John is saying in the passage that we're studying this week. Uh, 1 John 4, 1 through 6. If you haven't opened up there already, turn in your Bibles to our passage so that we can read it together and then talk about it for a little bit and see the great truths that John has for us here. Uh, let's read it together. 1 John 4, 1 through 6. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So if we look real ba at back real quick at the first verse here, uh, John begins with two commands. He says, beloved, do not believe every spirit, command one. But, command two, test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Uh, both of these verbs for believe and to test, do not believe and test, are in the imperative mood. Uh, it's a mood in the Greek language that expresses a command. And John only uses about 10 of these in this letter. Bo we've got two of the 10 right here. Do not believe 
but test. Do not believe, but test. Test the spirits. And you might read that and think, what is he talking about, the spirits? I mean, sometimes when I think of the spirits, I think of Disney's Haunted Mansion, right? I, all these, like, translucent things and something that shows up in your, you know, doom buggy when you exit the ride. Uh, do you test those spirits? Do you say, who do you confess? Uh, that's not what he's talking about here at all. In fact, he reveals what he's talking about as we continue the first verse. He says, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. So the spirits here are the driving forces behind false prophecy, false teaching, uh, false uh, counsel in the name of the Lord. So we can kind of replace that spirits in our mind with spiritual teaching. Because that's what he's saying here. Many false prophets have gone out. Many false mes messages, false teaching. So don't believe all that spiritual teaching, but test it instead. So that's our first point. Uh, right from the text here is test all spiritual teaching. Uh, that's what the text says. Test all spiritual teaching. Right from the text there. Why? As the text says, many false prophets have gone out. Many false prophets. Uh, referring back to 1 John 2.19, he was talking about those who had left their community with a different message, a different gospel, a twist on the truth. And he said they went out from us because they were never really of us. And if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but their going out revealed that they were never really one of us. And he's talking about them now that you need to test the teaching that they bring. That uh, Greek word there for test, uh, dokimazo, it means to examine something, to test it, to inspect it, to look at it. It's actually used 22 times in the New Testament. Uh, it's used in Romans 12.2 and Ephesians 5.10, and it's translated as discern there. Uh, discern this need to separate the good from the bad, the wrong from the right. And just like money needs to be tested, examined, discerned to see whether it's counterfeit or not, uh, so too spiritual teaching must be tested or examined uh, to see whether or not it's legitimate. And you might think, yeah, that must have been so hard in John's day 2,000 years ago. Uh, we, we learned, we know that John was the last surviving apostle. Uh, this apostolic witness was dying out, and false teachers were coming into the church. Uh, we know that they didn't have a uh, full Bible the way that we do. They didn't have the New Testament all collected together and printed and, you know, bound together in a book the way that we do. They didn't have a strong, established church. The church was new and young and growing. And again, these false teachers were going out. That must have been really hard for them. Glad it's not that hard for us, right? Well, no, not right. Uh, if you look at 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13... 2 Timothy 3, 12 and 13, Paul here writing to his disciple Timothy, who's going to go on and lead the church, he warns him, he says, all 
who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So godly people will be persecuted. And he says, well, evil people, evil people and imposters, false teachers, uh, false prophets will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So according to Paul, uh, false teaching, false teachers are going to go from bad, which is what they were, many false prophets have gone out, to worse. So it's actually worse today than it was then. And if you think about it, that makes sense. I mean, don't we hear so many voices out there so many voices speaking spiritual truths, right? Whether it be spoken or written or on a podcast or whatever it is, so many voices that want to offer spiritual truth to us. They're everywhere. And we are charged as Christians not to believe them, but instead to test them, to see if what they are saying is true. And you might think, oh, that just feels so rude. I mean, to have to constantly being, oh, I'm not going to believe that. I'm going to test that. I'm going to evaluate that. I mean, I'm the kind of person that really likes to just get along without drama. And that sounds dramatic to me. In fact, I don't even really like all this theology stuff. Well, I remember speaking to a pastor's wife years and years and years ago, not one of our Compass pastor's wives, but uh, I remember her saying to me that I hate doctrine. I hate theology. And, you know, thinking about that, I realized that the scripture says that attitude, if we have that, it's quite immature. Uh, look at Hebrews 5, 11 through 14. Hebrews 5, 11 through 14 speaks to this. Uh, the author of the Hebrews here uh, saying to his audience, talking about something that was kind of heavy, complex, that they should have been able to communicate about. He says in verse 11, about this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you've become dull of hearing. You're not hearing right anymore. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You need someone to teach you, again, the basic principles of the oracles of God. Saying, you know, you've been a Christian so long, you should be teaching others by now. You should be investing into others. You should be discipling and mentoring others. But you need someone to take you back to the basics. And then he goes on, you need milk and not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. He's saying babies live on milk and that's okay. Children live on milk and that's okay. But when you become a, an adult, you need meat, you need food, you need theology, you need doctrine. And that's what he says in verse 14. Solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment. This ability to test the spirit, spiritual teaching. Their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So as we mature in the Christian life, we're expected to grow up, to get off the milk, and to be able to test 
and say, is this from God or is this not from God? To distinguish good from evil. Can you imagine if your friend invited you over for, let's say, a little dinner party on Saturday night? And you come to the house and it's all decorated cute and there's flowers everywhere. And, you know, the plates are set out and the silverware's there. And in the center of the table for dinner is jars of baby food. I mean, you would be like, oh, this is a joke, right? No. No, it's not a joke. I've just decided I'm going back to Gerber. Love it, man. Gerber. You know, you'd be like, what? This is gross. I'm going to go to In-N-Out. I mean, I can't do this. You know, it, it just, it wouldn't even make sense. It would be absurd, right? And that's what the author of Hebrews is saying here as well. I mean, we don't do that with normal food. We can't do that with spiritual food either. We have got to grow up and mature. We've got to mature in our ability to distinguish between good and evil in our discernment. And that is, as the text says, something that we develop. It says, when we're trained by constant practice. Trained by constant practice. You know what that means? Hard work. It's hard work. It's hard work. Uh, look at Proverbs 2, 1 through 5. Proverbs 2, 1 through 5 talks about this need for hard work. Uh, this little section in Proverbs wraps up with, you know, finding the knowledge of God. If we want to be knowledgeable, if we want to be people who can discern, who can, uh, you know, differentiate between what's good and what's evil, we need to do the things that Proverbs 2, 1 through 5 reveals. It says, you know, Solomon writing to his son here, writing to his sons, writing to the nation of Israel, writing to us in a sense, uh, my son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments with you. So we've got to receive the words. We've got to treasure them up, uh, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. So you've got to do the work of making your ear attentive. You've got to incline your heart towards this. Uh, yes, if you call out for insight, you've got to call out for it. You've got to long for it. You've got to raise your voice, it says, for understanding. You have to raise your voice for the shout for this. Uh, if you seek it like silver, if you value this as much as you value money, goods, the things in this life, and search for it as for hidden treasures, you got to really want this. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. So just look back at this. This is ancient wisdom. These are truths that have been around forever, thousands of years. We need to receive, treasure up, make our ears attentive, incline our heart, call out, raise our voice, seek it, and search for it. That is hard work. And that's just the call of the Christian life. Finding the knowledge of God, becoming these spiritually wise women requires hard work. And that's why uh, in 1 Thessalonians 5.21, uh, Paul writing there to the church said, test everything. Same Greek word, dokimazo, test everything. Hold fast what is good. Okay, you might think, I got it. We do need to test everything. But how do I do that? I mean, how do we test everything? 
And the great thing is it's right in the text. I mean, John shows us how we test everything in 1 John 4, 2 and 3. Let's look back at our passage. He says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Uh, that word confess there, homo legeo, it means to say the same thing about, to be in agreement with. It doesn't mean just to say, yes, this person existed, but you are in agreement about who he was. You're in agreement about why he existed and what he came to do. You're in agreement about what your response to him needs to be. All of these things must be confessed. We must be on the same page with these things. And uh, John's audience was being told that Jesus didn't really come in the flesh. That divinity didn't actually uh, reside in human flesh. And whatever Jesus did on the cross, it definitely isn't what you think it is. Uh, taking on the wrath of God and being punished for our sins and making us right before a perfect standard. No. Uh, John and the apostles, they've over-dramatized this stuff. That's not what really happened. And so how were they called to test those things that they were hearing? By comparing it to the teaching that they'd already heard. No, Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. They were to compare what they were hearing now with what they had already been taught. And we do the same thing. That's the way that we test. We take what we're hearing and we compare it to what we've been taught in the scripture. So the second point here from the text is compare the teaching to the scripture. Whatever the teaching is, we just compare it to the scripture. We ask, uh, what does this teaching say about Jesus? Does it reveal that he is fully God? That he is God who took on human flesh? Does it reveal that he's fully man? That he is actually a human being? Uh, does it reveal all that he did on the cross? That he went to that cross as our only hope, our only option to take on a penalty that we could never pay to make us right before a holy God? Uh, does it reveal the truth about the resurrection that Jesus accomplished what he set out to do on the cross? That he paid for every single one of our sins? That he was victorious over sin and death? That he rose from the dead, proving that the claims that he made about himself were true. Proving that we don't have to pay off our sins ourselves. Uh, does the teaching show that the response to this great gospel is repentance and faith? As the Bible explains again and again, that we must put our full trust in the person of Jesus and turn from our sins, no longer to live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. And does the teaching put the focus on Jesus, on God, or is the focus on us? And the best way to evaluate whether something is legitimate uh, to compare and see if a teaching is legitimate is to compare it to the real thing, to the scripture. 
I read through a lot of fun little websites about counterfeit money and the counterfeiting process and even the process of detecting those counterfeits. Uh, I read through some government websites and some things that were written by employees of these uh, groups that detect counterfeit money. And one employee who was an expert wrote on a website, uh, we detect counterfeits with our machinery and our staff. The feel of the currency is one of the primary factors our staff uses to determine the authenticity of the note. So even though they have machinery and staff, it's the feel of the currency that's one of the primary factors. U.S. currency is made of 75% cotton and 25% linen. And when you're handling it every day, you definitely know what it feels like. So as they're handling this real currency, the actual currency, every single day they know what it feels like. So all of a sudden, you get a piece of paper in your hand and you're like, oh, that's different. They handle the real so much that the second that a fake comes in, they can tell, they can spot it out right away. Multiple uh, counterfeit detection agency websites said, you've got to master the real when it comes to looking for counterfeits. Don't put your focus on the imitations, but instead get to know the real so well that you'll spot the counterfeit right away. And that's the same for us, right? We want to get to the point where we don't even need the marker or the UV light. We can tell just by the feel that something is off. And the only way we can do that is we have got to spend time in the Bible every single day. Every single day. We've got to master the real. And by the Bible, I mean the whole Bible, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And as Carrie uh, mentioned in the announcements, if you aren't on board with us, uh, as with Compass, as we go through the daily Bible reading, I would strongly encourage you to jump in now. Uh, we're not even halfway done with January, right? So you can double up for a couple weeks and you can be right on track with us when February begins. Just do two entries a day and you'll be right on track with us in just a couple weeks, just two weeks. And it is so worth it to spend that time in the Old Testament and the New Testament, the whole Bible, so that you can get to know it. Uh, the DBR gives you a chunk of the Old Testament and then a little chunk of the New Testament so that you can get through the whole Bible every single year. And if you say, oh, I would love to do that, but I just don't have the time, I would say to you, I don't believe you. I don't believe you because you and me, we've all been given the exact same 24 hours. No one has more than 24 hours and no one has less. But what do we choose to do with those 24 hours? We choose to do what we want to do with them. So I don't think it's that you don't have the time. I think it's that you don't want to invest your time into that. That's what you don't want to do. And that reveals that God's word is just not a priority to you. 
And if you're trying to go through the DBR, through the daily Bible reading or whatever, and you mess up, you miss a day, you miss two days, you miss three days, just get back up and get back in it again. Uh, sometimes as women, when we fail something, we think, okay, that's it. I'm going to retry in 2022. Uh, I can't do this. I've messed up. No, get up and start again. It's okay. If you can, redo the ones you missed. If not, just get back in and get on track. It's okay. And if you might be thinking, yeah, I've done that. I've tried that. But you know what? A lot of it, especially the Old Testament, it's boring. I'm sorry. hate to say it. Let's be real. It's boring. Well, what if you worked for, you know, one of these government agencies and your job was to detect counterfeit currency and they asked you as an employee to spend time with real currency every single day? Uh, what if you came in one day and said, you know what, I am over this job. I'm so bored by this real currency. Same currency every day, every week, every month, every year. I'm tired of it. It's boring. Would your employer be like, oh, well, let's find you something else to look at. Let's see if we can add to it and make it more fun. No. They'd say, you know what? Okay, you're fired. I mean, no big deal. We'll find somebody else. Now, obviously, we're not going to get fired from God's family, you know, if we have a problem here. But we're not going to get employee of the month, right? I mean, we got to change our attitude towards this. We really need to change our attitude towards it. We need to see this as our job. It is as Christians. It's our job to know, to understand, to master the word of God. Every single day we should come to the word of God and say, okay, God, uh, even if it's hard, just show me at least one truth about yourself here. I don't need to know everything here. I don't need to master every word. But if you could show me one truth about you or one truth about me, uh, that would be great. That would be helpful. That would be a good thing. And just jot that down. What has God shown you today about this text, about him and his character, who he is, or about you yourself? I love what the reformer Martin Luther said about his Bible study time. Uh, he said, I study my Bible as I gather apples. And he didn't mean I study my Bible while I gather apples. He meant in the same way that I gather apples, that's the way that I study my Bible. He says, first I shake the whole tree that the ripest might fall. Then I shake each limb. And when I've shaken each limb, I shake each branch and every twig. Then I look under every leaf. He's looking for truth from God. And he goes and he shakes the tree trunk there. Then he shakes every limb, every twig, and even looks under every leaf, expecting to find truth from God. And we need to do the same thing. We need to come to God's word expecting to hear from him. We need to shake that word and say, okay, what's here? What do I see about God or what do I see about myself? And if we do that consistently, day in, day out, uh, week in, week out, month in, month out, we will become people who can spot false teaching a mile away because we're so proficient in the scripture. And it takes a lot of hard work and I will confess, I haven't arrived I have not mastered the word of God, not even come close to mastering it. 
And I'm sure that most of you out there could do a little work too, right? Uh, And you might be thinking, oh, I hear you, I hear you, I hear you, but this sounds so exhausting. I mean, I wanted 2021 to be my year of grace. I want to focus on grace. I just want things to be easy. I don't want all this hard work. Well, you know what? I want 2021 to be a year of grace too. I'm right there with you. But let's look at what the scripture says about grace. Uh, Look at 1 Corinthians 15.10. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul writing to the church at Corinth there, says, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. He said his grace towards me made a difference in my life. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. You know what that reveals? When we are recipients of God's grace, when we are just really enjoying the grace of God, the grace of God drives us, moves us, compels us to work hard, to pursue him and love him and know him and invest into others. And if you're feeling like you're anxious or you're troubled or you're confused or you're down, I would just say, how is your time in the word of God? Are you really shaking that trunk there? Are you shaking the branches? Are you looking under every leaf? Uh, Listen to what uh, David said in Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 20. He said, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. Can you imagine that? He's saying, my soul is consumed with this. This is all that I think about is your rules, longing for your rules, longing for the scripture, longing for the word. That was Psalm 119, verse 20. And if you think about it, what did he have? Uh, The first five books of Moses, uh, maybe Joshua, Judges, Ruth, uh, maybe eight books there. And yet he was consumed with longing for that. And then he said in the same Psalm, Psalm 119, 165, Great peace, great peace have those who love your law. Nothing can make them stumble. What a promise. Great peace have those who love your law. And if you love it, you're in it, you're reading it. You have time for it. And nothing can make them stumble. That's where we want to be, right? So we need to go to God's word and we need to compare everything that we hear, even everything that we think and everything that we feel to what the scripture says. And if our thinking is off or our feelings are off, we just kick them to the curb. And we say, no, we're putting our confidence in the scripture, in the word of God. Not those outside voices, not the inside voices, not even our emotions or our feelings. Our confidence is in the scripture alone. And you know, John goes on to give us one additional way that we can test spiritual teaching to discern whether or not it's from the Lord. And that's in the last three verses here. 1 John 4, 4 through 6. So if you want to look back at that real quick. Uh, He says, little children, addressing them again, you are from God. 
You are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world. And the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So we see here that John is making this distinction. He's separating. He's dividing. He's saying that when we test the spirits, this division will naturally occur. There's this you versus them. You are from God. They are from the world. There's this sharp contrast here we see in these four verses. Because again, this... uh, discernment, this need to distinguish, it will separate the legitimate from the false. You listen to the teaching of God, and they listen to the teaching from the world. So the third point here is the way that we can tell if a teaching is rooted in God's word, if it's biblical or scriptural, is note the world's response to that teaching. Note the way that the world responds to this spiritual teaching because true believers, genuine believers, ultimately reject false teaching. And that's what John assures his hearers with. He says, Christ in you has kept you from giving in, from being given over to these false teachers. You have overcome them. Uh, The Greek verb there, nikeo, we get Nike, the word, a conqueror, a victor, an overcomer. You are an overcomer. Uh, And the verb is in the perfect tense in the Greek. Uh, That means it's a past action with present implications. You have and you continue to overcome them. And you will because Christ is in you. And then look again at verse 5 of 1 John 4. They on the other hand, are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world, and the world listens to them. The world listens to false teaching, and that's false spiritual teaching. You know, they can take the truth, and they twist it. They twist it, and suddenly it's acceptable. It's tolerable to the world. You can twist it just a little bit, and suddenly the world says, This is okay. And when we see the world chasing after a teaching, we better beware, right? That's what John says, because it's not from God. Just that slight shift from a focus on Christ to a focus on to me or on to us can make the world love it. You know, there's those... Christian pastors out there, Christian authors, Christian teachers that the world loves. The world just loves them. And sometimes they'll even say, oh, you know, they're so attractive, or she's so cute, or, you know, I love the material that they publish, I love the fonts, and I love the colors that they use. And, you know, whenever there's images of them on the internet or, you know, social media, they're always laughing and having fun. And here I am grinding through this DVR, you know. Maybe I'm missing out on something over here. Well, you know what? We can't look at that packaging. We got to look at the message. What are they saying? What's the focus on? Is the focus on Christ or is the focus on you? 
Are they saying things like, you know, you're just so great. You know, you're perfect. You got this. You're enough. Are they saying, you know, you should be more appreciated. You should focus more on you. You know, you need to stand up for yourself. You need to get more out of this life because you've been cheated. I mean, just a constant you, you, you. If so, it's twisted. That's not the teaching of God. I uh, just got a new Christian women's devotional uh, about a week ago. Um, it was highly recommended, had great reviews. Uh, it was written by a woman. Uh, she seemed to be super sharp, and I thought, oh, this will be fun. And, you know, she takes you through the whole Bible in a year. So she has you read a chunk. Uh, actually, she gives like a little explanation of what you're going to read in the chunk. And then you read the whole chunk and ultimately you get through the whole Bible in a year. And I thought, well, that's great. I'm looking forward to reading this and just hearing what she has to say. So I got it from Amazon, was in my office, excitedly opened it up and just landed on Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. Uh, the excellent wife, right? The exceptional woman. And thought, oh, great. Love that passage. Such a great passage. Carlin and I got spent, I don't know, at least 100 hours collectively studying that text. And this will be so fun. Um, and then I read her little entry on that. And thought, you know what? Let me just read it to you. <laughs> uh, Proverbs 31, 10 through 31. She titles it, Excellent Women. And she begins... Setting it up, uh, I expect Lemuel hoped that someone out there would eventually find an excellent wife. Uh, I was thinking, yeah, well, I, I, that's fine. I mean, Lemuel didn't really, in a sense, write this. This was wisdom passed on from his mother to him, but he did, in a sense, write it. So, yes, that's fine. I'm nitpicking. Uh, he says, when he asks who can find, even though it sounds rhetorically like an impossibility, he just means that you should be really happy when you finally do find her, however it happens. She will be the most precious person any man can find, if indeed he can manage it. Well, I mean, sounds kind of like, you know, random chance, hey, you got an excellent wife, woohoo! You know, but, uh, you know, that's fine, I get it, I get what she's saying. You know, they're hard to find, it's hard to find. Agree, I'm gonna agree with that. And then the next paragraph, the twisting comes in. She says, and of course, so many women, both now and long ago, enjoy so much being the kind of woman described here. Who among us doesn't love to leap up before the rising of the sun? To gather flax and wool, to dress everyone in scarlet, to make sure everyone is more than fed at every single tiny unrelenting meal to build a lucrative side hustle that's basically a successful real estate venture. So the sarcasm, the cynicism starts coming in. And then the third final paragraph, the punch, the conclusion. The problem with this strong, precious woman is that she is concentrated on other people. There you go. She wakes up and thinks about and works for others all day long. Who can even understand such a person? No, I'm pretty sure this description is some sort of spiritual metaphor for the church and Israel. Also, my children don't look good in red, and I don't have servants. Okay. <laughs> I read that and thought, oh, that's such a bummer. 
you know what, I know that's hard, that she's concentrated on other people, and she works for others all day long, but guess what? That's the Christian call. That's what the Bible calls us to do, Old Testament and New Testament. I mean, think about what Paul wrote to the Philippians. In Philippians 2, 3 through 8, he admonishes them. He says to them, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. I mean, you do have to be concentrated on other people. He says, don't only look out to your own interest, but the interest of others. And then he notches it up and says, think about what Jesus did for you. He says, have this mind among yourself. Think this way, focus this way, live this way. He was in the form of God and he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He let go of his position, and he took on human flesh. He emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. And found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Even though he was in the highest place in the universe, he was God. He humbled himself, and he remained God, but he took on human flesh and he was found as a servant of all men going all the way to death on a Roman execution rack. And Paul says, that's the mindset that you're supposed to have as Christians. But, you know, we think she's so fun and funny and it's so real and witty. It's not real. She even said the Proverbs 31 woman is not real, right? She said it's a metaphor. It must be church or Israel. It can't be a real person. You know, we want that stuff. We always hear that. I want someone who's real. This isn't real. We want what's really real. We want what the scripture says, right? Not someone that's real and always airing their dirty laundry for us. I got nothing biblical out of the book, looked at other entries, and returned it to Amazon. Just didn't want anything to do with it. You know, we gotta be careful. We gotta make sure we're not listening to voices because they're telling us what we want to hear. And if you're a mom, you've got to be twice as careful, even 10 times more careful. Because you might have a child that went to Awana and memorized all the Bible verses and, you know, gave their birthday money towards missionaries and prayed for those missionaries and went and cleaned the neighbor's house because Jesus washed the disciples' feet. But maybe they go on to be high school or, you know, even junior high, college, and they're rebellious. And they don't love God. They don't love his word. They don't love his people. They don't like coming to church. They hate it over here. Everyone's a hypocrite but them, right? You know what? They're not saved. And that's hard. It hurts. It hurts our hearts to wrestle with that. And sometimes what we'll do is we'll go to false teaching. We'll go to uh, a book or a podcast or even another church where they say what we want to hear. We can't do that. Or our kids, we so desperately want, you know, good relationships with them. We want them to love us and we want to be their best friend, right? So we let them do things that we know they shouldn't do because we're afraid of interrupting that relationship or we don't charge them to do the things we know they should do because, you know, we want them to like us. And that podcast 
or that book or that other pastor, they say that's what we're supposed to do. We can't do that. We gotta be super careful. We've got to beware. Anytime a voice, a teaching, a blog, whatever, takes our, our thinking, our heart from the cross and from Christ and puts it on our comfort, we're in the danger zone and we've got to run from it. And again, you know, we're going to be tempted because so often these things come in such great packages. Charismatic people, so funny, so witty, such great speakers, so dynamic. But we got to look at the content not the way that it's delivered, but what is the content? What are they saying? And if the content doesn't line up with scripture, I don't care how funny they are. No, you can't do it. We cannot do it. You know, it's interesting. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.10, thinking about that, this reminded me of that. 2 Corinthians 10.10, you know, the great apostle Paul, he was accused of not being a great speaker. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10.10, you can read it later. They said, you know, your letters, they're pretty powerful, but, you know, when you get in before us and you speak, you're nothing to be impressed with. Nothing. But look at his content. Can you imagine what we would have missed if we focused on the wrong things? And, you know, this false teaching can come from the most unlikely sources. Uh, think about when Jesus was talking with his disciples in Matthew 16, and Jesus revealed to them that he was going to suffer greatly, even go to the cross. And Peter, uh, one of his best friends, Peter, who loved him, uh, Peter said no. Uh, the text says in Matthew 16 that Peter took Jesus, God, aside and began to rebuke him. He began to rebuke him. Can you imagine rebuking God? God, you're blowing it, right? Uh, he began to rebuke him saying, this shall never happen to you. And Jesus turned to Peter and remember what he said, get behind me, Satan, right? Yeah, spirit of false teaching, get behind me. And then he said, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. So important there. Are we setting our mind on the things of God or the things of man? And then Jesus went on to tell all of his disciples, whoever would come after me, they need to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. That's the message of the scripture. And you might be thinking right now, ooh, I know that I've given some bad advice uh, maybe even been, you know, s the source of some bad suggestions, even bad teaching, maybe like Peter. Well, you know what, if that's true, just repent. Just confess it. Say, you know what, God, I'm so sorry for what I've done. And if you can fix it, fix it. You know, if you've given bad advice or you've allowed bad things or bad counsel to your kids, just sit down with them and say, you know what, we need to push the reset button. I've been, you know, thinking along the lines of the world and putting my thoughts on the interests of man rather than the interests of God, and let's just fix this right now. And if you can't fix it, it's just long gone, it's done and over with, it's okay. Just confess and repent before God and don't get overly balled up about it. Because in the end, you're not Christ, you can't save anyone, and you can't keep anyone from being saved. Praise God, right? I mean, if you look even at the DVR that we're going through right now, we're looking at the family there of Jacob and Rebecca and Esau and Jacob, and what a mess. 
I mean, they are all all over the board, and yet God providentially still works through them and accomplishes his purposes. So when we find out we've been wrong, we need to get up and repent and confess and move forward, not being so paralyzed by what we've done in the past. And if you do see that cancer, so to speak, of false teaching out there, you're going to want to get rid of it, right? It's cancer. It's destructive. You're going to want to get rid of it. But when you do, uh, have the attitude of a skilled surgeon. A skilled surgeon is going to see cancer on an MRI, let's say, and going to say, you know what? I have to be honest. There's cancer here. There's something that's destructive that's here. And we got to deal with it quickly. I need to do something quickly. We've got to do something quickly here. But the skilled surgeon is going to go in with such expertise that he or she will be able to remove the cancer, remove the tumor without destroying the other tissue. I mean, I could go in there and remove the tumor, right? But the person's going to die. And, you know, we have to have that mindset. That's why Peter, uh, talking to his audience in 1 Peter 3.15, said uh, we need to be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope in us. And he says, yet, yet, you got to do it with the skill of a surgeon. You do it with gentleness and respect. You don't want to destroy the healthy tissue getting to the cancer. So we've always got to do it with gentleness and respect. And you might be thinking, you know, my last thought here is, why did God even allow false teachers I mean, I hate false teaching. Why did he have to allow that? Well, you know, in a weird way, be encouraged by the false teaching. Because in a weird way, the false teaching is a great reminder to us that the legitimate exists. Uh, in 2006, the Great News Network in Texas uh, was raided by the Secret Service. Uh, the Great News Network is a group that trains evangelists. And one of the tools that they use was tracks. And their uh, most popular track that's still available today was a track made by Living Waters Ministries, which is Ray Comfort and Kurt Cameron up here a little bit north of us. Um, and this track was a million-dollar bill. It was a, a fake million-dollar bill, and on the back, it said the million-dollar question, will you go to heaven? And the whole gospel was there. Well, the Secret Service showed up at the Great News Network to confiscate all of their million-dollar bill tracks because apparently a woman in North Carolina tried to deposit hers in the bank. So the Secret Service got involved, and they were wondering whether or not they would even arrest these people, Ray Comfort, Living Waters, Great News Network, as counterfeiters. And apparently the founder of Great News Network reasoned with them and said, we didn't counterfeit anything because there is no million-dollar bill. <laughs> and if there is no million-dollar bill, we couldn't have counterfeited it. Oh, <laughs> you know, but what a great reminder that there are counterfeit, there's counterfeit money because there's real money and people want you to accept the fake and there's counterfeit teaching because there's real teaching 
And so this should remind us, it should remind us and inspire us even to work hard, to be those people who don't even need the marker and the UV light, who know the authentic so well that we can spot that counterfeit a mile away. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for uh, this amazing group of women. I love these ladies. I love being able to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus together with them. God, I pray that you would um, help us, God, to realize that we have a job to do, that we are called not to believe all spiritual teaching, but to test it. Uh, to compare it to your word. God, help us to get better at knowing and understanding your word so that when we do compare false teaching to the truth, to the legitimate, it would just stand out to us right away, Lord. God, we uh, pray that you would help us to remember that if the world is chasing after something, then it's probably not from you. And God, help us not to be wooed over by packaging and appearances and delivery and humor and charm, but God, help us to chase after, to long for sound truth. God, uh, we are so grateful to have this women's Bible study where we can comb through this letter from John. Uh, the truth that you have for us here. We're just so grateful that this church allows us to have this study and supports us and encourages us in this. Um, God, I thank you that we can pound through these truths together in our groups, wrestle through these things, talk through these things, and ultimately be more conformed to the image of your son. We pray in his precious name. Amen.